of one. Come all, round up, round up, all ye video game enjoyers and even video game haters, because we like to look at both sides of the argument here on this well-measured, well-rounded video game podcast that is the Super Show Podcast. I'm your host for this week, Jamie, and taking a poorly timed sip, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Alex Jones. How's it going, sir? It's good. I'm quick with the sipping. It was all good. I was in and out like the flash. Yeah, it's something I feel like I have to keep an eye on. Like There were a few times last week and the week before where I was like, I can't throw to Jonesy right now because <laughs> he is, he's mid-gulp and I don't want anything to go round. The... Hang on. Let's let's cool it with the sound effect. Actually, give me that one one more time. <laughs> Definitely not. Like, come, on, come on. Just let, let's isolate it so if anyone wants to clip it out for personal use. Come on. One more run. <laughs> See? That's the joy of the Super Show podcast. We provide the goods. We provide the material. What you do with it is up to you. So if you did, for example, want to isolate that sound bite, maybe make it a ringtone, a text tone, or you just wanted to use it to fulfill, fulfill your sexual fantasies, um, anything's available to you, and the choice is yours. If you do do any of those things, you may want to let us know. You can let us know on YouTube in the comment section, for example, um, or on Twitter. Reaching out on social media is always an option. The handle for both of those platforms is at Super. Oh no. Something terrible as Jamie's you don't want to see He's back. Oh you, you how much of me did you did you get? Uh I missed about the last five seconds. Uh, okay. I was just telling people where they can find us and and where, all the all the places where they can let us know how they use that soundbite. Like YouTube, like Twitter at Super Show Pod. And of course, if they don't want the visual component all of this, if they don't want to know what Josie's tongue looks like when he's making that sound, they can head over to podcasting platforms like Spotify, iTunes. Google Podcasts, or of course, there's just digital radio. Um, as Jonesy goes cool blue for the folks at home, uh, paisleyradio.com, Thursdays at 10 p.m. It's repeated on Mondays. Uh, Jonesy, One time, I didn't do my goddamn white balance, and it's gone mental. Oh, is it, is it an auto? Uh, see, these are the treats. I, look, nothing against Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, but these are the treats that you miss if you don't watch the video version of this on YouTube, is watching Jonesy trying to <laughs> do his white balance live. And let's do it properly. Let's let's dip in. Where's my camera? Are you going in settings? I think the thing is, I'm, is he going to break it? I don't. I do, do you have to? Like, yes, you are a very cool blue right now, but you're a few lens flares away from a JJ Abrams flick, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right, man. Let's keep it. Let's keep it blue. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why? I'm like I'm I'm inevitably going to get out of focus at some point in this in this program in this program this podcast. So. I am in no position to uh, to throw stones from my glass house for camera. Um, oh, it's also annoying about my camera. So I've got like a nice 4K Logitech webcam, and and um, it was br it was great for a really long time. And it, and as you can see right now, it's a fantastic picture. This light is purple. Ooh. It looks it looks you know it's very sexy. Uh, it's a bit it's my lightsaber that I like to have on when I'm doing these. My skin tone looks right. So this is how I look to myself. So like normal. As soon as I switch this camera over to like manual um, white balance, it the, the colors completely go haywire, and I can never get it right. So every week I look really red, which I hate. Like it, but yes. but then if I don't, sometimes I go blue. So it's it's you know six of one, yeah, half a dozen of the other. It's, it's one of these things we noticed it a lot. I feel like when we were you know dipping our toe in the live streaming waters, about when we were all kind of dabbling um, with Twitch back in twenty twenty when you know various parts of the world were in lockdown and we were all losing our minds that like it seems as though getting a consistent camera and mic setup that you can dip back into every single time you go live should be pretty easy as long as you don't touch anything but everything inevitably breaks 
in the even if it's just the twenty four hours between touching things. Um, yes. Yeah. My, like, so like, the one that will happen. My mic. If people have noticed, like the last three weeks, I think I've had an issue with my mic cable for whatever reason. My if my audio stops at any one point, Jamie will tell me. I'll re- unplug my cable, plug it back in, we'll be back. So don't don't lose heart. We'll be. Back. It was my bloody audio stopping tonight. I guess that was. I'm hoping that was just a one off connection issue, but. I hate it when it happens that early on in the podcast because people might like. I feel like everyone's on their edge of the seats now, just waiting for the next technical <laughs> issue. I know I am. Yeah, maybe. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out uh, to people in the chat who have joined us live as we're recording this on YouTube. I am talking about Low Point Fair, the Mushroom, Richard Lawton. Hello, all of you amazing people. Thank you for joining us. Um, the Mushroom saying that they're going to go for the dark mode um, as they're watching this to create some ambiance, which I approve of. Yeah, especially if you want to all asleep to this podcast which hey i'm not going to stop anyone from doing but it might be quite difficult to do with bangers of headlines like the ones we've got for you today such as jonesy are we about to get a remaster slash remake of the rockstar games hit red dead redemption um i will say that was that was a lot of ours to squeeze into one sentence you realize that when red dead redemption is made by rockstar and it's being looked at or eyed up for a remaster or a remake yeah um, I didn't roll it in my eyes though. I'd love to see a Spanish person take on that headline. That's that's what I want for the Dead Redemption. What do you reckon? I love a, a trilled R. Um, I can't do them at all myself. So um, shout out to you, Jamie, for being able to do them. And also uh, talking about shout outs at the risk of being a glutton for punishment, I'm going to give a shout out to Peter Wilson because he asked so nicely. Um, but that's it. No more shout outs because I'll oh, Jamie, you laid down the law. What if someone does like a super chat for like five dollars and says, "Can I give a shout out?" <laughs> As, okay, this is difficult now because this is not me saying, this is not like a saying super chat us because I, I, I feel weird about super chats because I'm like, I don't want people giving us their hard-earned cash. However, we always read our super chats because that's like a, I would feel super, super mean if we didn't read them out. But that's not to yeah. say, here's an excuse to give us money. You already do plenty for us as an audience. So unless unless there's a reason or you really want to, then, uh, just, yeah, I'll, we'll, um, we'll say hello to you in, in some <laughs> Okay. And I wonder if we'll be saying hello to Red Dead Redemption again in the future, just to unpack this one a little bit for you, Jonesy. So Rockstar's now 13-year-old game was classified again this month by South Korea's Games Rating and Administrative Committee, which, hey, let's admit it, it's one of the more boring ways for a project like this to be revealed. But as people have pointed out when they're speculating on this, a, you know, a, a country's Games Rating and Administration Committee don't just pretend that something got like sent into them or, um, you know, no. got sent in for adjudication and and, and that those ratings were delivered um and in fact the south korean one i think along with a couple of others maybe the brazilian i can never remember but there is a history there of that ah jamie's frozen again he's back oh you did you lose me oh for goodness sake just briefly there i wonder why that's happening mindset's been fine all day um okay I'm not the one saying that all of your housemates have hopped online for a quick, but... Oh, they're all watching this. They're all live streaming it. That's the problem. That is the problem. That's what I was going to say. They've all joined or jumped online for a quick watch of Jamie and his elements. So, good. Yeah. Well, in my element, when I can be, when internet allowing, bandwidth allowing. Um, you might, so the other thing to flash back to, Joe, is remember when um, the GTA trilogy were going to be remastered and they were going to make what they refer to as the definitive edition of those games oh i do yeah um but burned into all our memories maybe even scarred um at this stage uh kotaku were one of the outlets that were sort of really on top of that 
they had uh, you know a writer amongst their ranks who clearly was sort of in the know. I think had some kind of source at Rockstar. Um, that writer did an update around about a year ago, saying that because of the I don't know if you remember this story, but because of the way that that, that trilogy and those remasters had been received, that some planned remasters of Grand Theft Auto Four and Red Dead Redemption had either been scrapped or put on ice. Um, I do, yeah, I do remember that. Now you say it, yeah, yeah, which because it then, kind of bummed I mean, out. Yeah, like it made all of us pretty sad for the fact because this is the thing. Whilst they didn't do a great job for the definitive edition of um, uh, for GTA, it was still something that we all would have, as fans, I'm sure we all would have loved to see a remake of Red Dead. And just because some games don't work for whatever reason, it doesn't mean to say that you know another remake's not going to work. If you look at like, for example, what you're dealing with in those games, I think Red Dead was a much um, a much better developed, much newer game anyway uh, when it originally came out. Yes. So you'd think that they hopefully aren't going to end up as play-doughy and as melty-faced as some of the um, GTA characters. Yeah, because like you go back to GTA 3, for example, and I think a lot of us were, maybe stunned is too strong a word, but a lot, a lot of us actually needed to be reminded of just how different GTA 3 looked to where you know, Rockstar would eventually go with their focus from increased focus on realism over the years. And there were a lot of kind of exaggerated, uh, you know, it was an exaggerated style and certainly sort of like, character silhouettes were actually pretty unconventional in a way that i think um mobile game developer extraordinaires uh grocery games were maybe not the best equipped to handle um i'm not saying that they'd be any more equipped to handle red dead redemption it's a big game but a lot of people have been talking about the possibility Josie, of like taking red dead redemption and and I, I, people say this on twitter with like like it's the easiest thing in the world this would be incredibly hard but if possible taking it and putting it in the Red Dead 2 engine. I mean, if that's the kind of thing that, if that's possible, and if that work is being done, that could result in a pretty cool product, right? Like, 100%. But, uh, you know, I think the people that have been saying that are at real risk of doing what I do every single time, which is to say, ah, it's not that difficult to make games, because the reality is just taking a game and trying and saying, just pop it in this engine. Like, that is not a thing. You can't just pop it in the yep. engine and it looks like, Red Dead 2 you know you've got to go through and uh, you'd have to upload all those new textures and you'd have to sort of like uh, redo the models and you'd have to do a whole bunch of, of insane amount of legwork to get it to where people want it to be um, my, and, but at risk of being just as bad not not because I'm not, not just as easy but at risk of like being as annoying as those people about how good it could look if you just said to me hey we're talking Resident Evil uh, remake level of uh, remake I'm, I'm totally on board with that it doesn't have to be red dead 2 level it doesn't but it i don't want it to be gta definitive edition level like i write i would somewhere in the middle for me would be fantastic as i was saying to you before the show like i i never finished red dead and i actually went back to try and complete it a few years ago and was shocked by the state of like that because it's an old game like we said it's 13 years old and yeah i thought i my memory of it was much better than it really was and but yeah but then to take it red dead 2 i mean you want to go to one of the best game best looking games ever made i, mean, I think maybe that's a little bit but too far of a shot for um a remake it's definitely they could do it yeah would you want them it? i mean if they feel like they have the time and the capacity and it's not having any sort of negative impact on say gta 6's development for example then i wouldn't say no but then i'd also be and i, I don't know how you feel about this I'd also be very cool with just a very simple remaster, like a fundamentally identical game that just bumps up the, the native resolution or bumps up the texture resolutions if possible. Because like you said, 
The thing about Red Dead Redemption is, yes, it's 13 years old, but the reason you probably had such a crappy experience when you tried to go back to it is because it's not that easy to play by today's standards. No. The PS3 version, I think you could only play via streaming. It was on PlayStation Now and all that kind of stuff for a little while. So that was kind of crummy. I think that's I think that's how I played it was I streamed it. Um yeah. it was so you also had like the lagginess of that when that was that when it was when it was on that. It wasn't perfect. Um and it's not the best way to play it, for sure. It is not the best right. way. And it's 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 playable through backwards compatibility on Xboxes, but the amount of people who own I think you need like a I think I think you can go all the way back to a one X and get pretty decent performance out of it, but right. um I don't know how many people are actually you know in a position to do that. And then finally, the thing that could well be addressed in all of this, Red Dead Redemption never came to PC. I was just going to ask you that question because, of course, Red Dead 2 did go to PC, didn't it? Yeah, so it did. A whole bunch of PC gamers that would abs- I, I would imagine would absolutely love to now go and play Red Dead, the original, and actually maybe, hey, maybe that does mean it's much more likely that they do a complete remake because there's a whole cohort who never got to play it on PC and it's going to be you know the best way to play that uh, a fantastic-looking game. But but when you said it, like I and I thought you you were right straight away. Like a remaster, a remaster would yeah. a good remaster would absolutely be fine. I would be com- I would be happy with that. I would enjoy that and I would play it. Um, yeah, it doesn't need sure. to be a complete sort of ground up remake. Whilst that would be nice. Yeah, because it's I think it's a strong game. Um, like I, I, like you said there, I think there are some parts that have probably not aged as gracefully. But I think Red Dead Redemption was uh, where. Certainly in sort of like a post-GTA 4 environment, Red, Red Dead was when GTA was starting to lay down like some of the ideas and principles that would define the direction I think they could continue to go in all the way up to its sequel uh, many years later. Uh, do you know what would be the cherry on top uh, of all of this for me, though? Would be if we got some form of repackaged Red Dead Redemption and they also took it as an opportunity to, and it doesn't have to be a remaster, just like re-release Red Dead Redemption 2 but with a native PS5 app um, that maybe like runs at a slightly higher resolution. Basically, give me an excuse to play that game again, even if it's only marginally better. Even if it's like fundamentally identical, but like the native resolution is slightly higher or the frame rate is slightly higher. Uh, don't You don't need to change it. You don't need to do any work. Just port it to PS5. From and really the first one. From a marketing perspective, like that seems like such an easy win. Like It, <laughs> it does, right? Say, Play this as better, the best it's ever looked. Also, why don't you replay, and you can get the upgrade if you've got the play if the PS4 version. You can play the upgrade for like ten quid or whatever. I mean, yeah, it seems like an easy easy win. Um, someone in chat said they should remaster Gun, and I was that would be great. I'd be all over that as well. Like Gun back in the day. I mean, to be fair, yeah, not enough games. Uh, well, prior to Gun or even since Gun have featured scalping, um, which is <laughs> yeah a really important um. You know, I, I think one of the pillars, one of the tent poles of, of, of any Western story is the ability to scalp your enemies. It, it uh, was a part of the Wild West, Jamie. I think that they need to put it into more games. I think you're absolutely right. Agreed. One of the things that Red Dead was uh, sorely missing. Um, I, I have one more question about Red Dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the reason I never finished Red Dead was because there was a cheeky little DLC, which completely took me by surprise. Ooh, and I loved... Uh, and spent, ended up spending far too much time playing, and then never played, never went back and finished Red Dead. And that, of course, is Red Dead Redemption Undead Nightmare, which I absolutely love. Does that come packaged with the remake slash remaster? Should it? Would it? Has to. Would you be all over it? Has to. Has to. It's like a, 
even to this day, as we said, 13 years on, it is like put on a pedestal as one of the most iconic pieces of sort of downloadable content in that kind of core era when like downloadable content wasn't a dirty word or a series of <laughs> words. Um, people love it. And people such as yourself love it uh, or remember it as fondly, if not more fondly than the original game. I don't know how you package it up, whether there's two versions, whether the version with Undead Nightmare costs more, or whether you just put it all in one big package, put a bow on it, one price tag, and say you're getting both regardless. But I think either way, it would be a real miss if Red Dead came back and Undead Nightmare didn't. Yeah, I, I agree. I completely agree. Which one would you start with if you're picking up that remaster day one and it, you've you've just loaded yeah. the game, it's just faded up from black and you've got both like you know, proper like episodes from Liberty City style. So you've got the yeah. artwork for both work for both in front of you. I would have so I've finished Undead Nightmare, I haven't finished Red Dead. I would have to go into Red Dead first, play that to completion, and then my little treat for finishing it would be to then play <laughs> Undead Nightmare. I think that's how I'd have to do it. So all you're saying is you'd never play Undead Nightmare? <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Well, I've got a lot of time on my hands now, so I'm sure I would, if, as long as it comes out in the next six months. Do you want to talk? I mean, I know you, you shared that on Twitter, right? Your, um, your, your, your recent... Uh, I, just, I did, yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, just double-checking, because I was thinking maybe when we get to the catch-up, you uh, I didn't know if it was... I didn't want to put you in it by mentioning it, and you'd be like, I wanted to keep that private. No, I don't care. I'll mention it when I do catch up. I'm sure people don't care, but I'll, uh, yeah, just because in yeah. case people, like, for example, one of the reasons why we were late starting tonight, it might be that I'll mention it because of that. Yeah, well, it's a, a, a little tease there for what's to come. But in the meantime, I do just want to give a quick shout out to the good folks who keep the lights on and keep this whole operation running. And they are the fine folk who have gone over to show us their support at patreon.com forward slash super show. If you head over there right now, what you'll find is that there are a number of different ways that you can support us, a number of different tiers that you can pledge to, and we try and fulfill as many different interesting rewards as possible at each of those tiers, whether that's access to the Super Show Discord server, or whether that's access to a number of uh, patron-exclusive content, all the things, that, bits and pieces that we've made over the years. It's still all there. It's still all available to you. If you head over to that link once again, patreon.com forward slash Super Show, take a look at what's on offer. And if you do feel moved to um, to show a little bit of support and to help us keep this podcast going, then we would be eternally grateful. Um, there are some names on screen now of some fine folk who have already uh, gone over and pledged. Um, so a big thank you to all of them. And also a personal shout out to Aaron Cameron, Athletic Gravy, Rimstone, Cole K, Icenaut Rock Salt, Jesper Camdal Nielsen, Leo Merger, Mindful Pig, Mr. Anthropic, Pastors Guild, and the big dogs, the members of the board, the ones who tell us what to do in a roundabout way. Brett Z, aka Shellshock, Geometric Potter, Hacksaw Book Read, Manuel Guerrero, Peaswad. And I did that thing again where I went up on Peaswad like there's a name afterwards, but there isn't. It's Peaswad. But I just. Peaswad. Peaswad. I turned it into a question. Peaswad. Peaswad. Is piece what? Uh, as you know, that's my. Um, I do that with constantly when I'm reading and speaking. So I, I'm I'm there with you, buddy. Yeah, what was the, you had a famous one? It was one of the. Um, it was one of the. It was a Lord of the Rings related one. Um, but yeah, or, or, we, or maybe it was even Pirates of the Caribbean. Just put always putting the emphasis on the wrong words. Pirates of the Caribbean. So, I got so okay. This is what's really bad. 
um, I was re- so I've, I think I've no I've, I've never mentioned it. Is it so? Uh, Neil Gaiman, the famous comic book creator, um, mm-hmm. he does other stuff as well. He's written a few kids books, and he's written a kids book called Fortunately the Milk, which is like a really cool, fun little story actually. Um, and we got it and read it to the kids, and I've read it to them a few times. Absolutely love it. Um, mid mid book, I'm I'm reading some I'm reading this to the kids. My seven year old says to me, "Can you not read it like that?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said. <laughs> When you say it was something like, when you've said something, and then the, then the same thing is said again, you say it exactly the same. And he said, and that doesn't sound right. That's like, oh, interesting. Wow. Can you think of an example from the book of like, I'm just so I can get it in situ. So uh, not I can't off the top of my head, but it would be something like so. The story's about a guy who goes time traveling uh, with some milk, and he's trying to get home for to his kids. So let's say for example, there was a line like um um. Uh, he, I put the milk into my pocket and tried to quickly escape from the pirates and then there'll be like something else, something filler and then he'll say, I put, I made sure the milk was still in my pocket and I ran from the pirates and he'll be like, you, you've said that too similarly, you need to make it sound different when you say it because it sounds weird if you say it. Oh. And I'm like, I, I get what he means, like I totally get it. You, the, you, the intonation needs to change but he, yeah. he get, he'll be like, dad, can you do voices? You need to voice each character differently, which I do do but Sometimes when I'm like, I can't change the intonation. Every little thing, man. This is like, is it, I'm I'm just more I'm less fascinated in the like that. That's the way you read it, and more fascinated that like a kid that young can kind of pick up on the intonation of it, like two different parts of the sentence, and like some part of his brain registers enough that like, no, I need to vocalize to my dad that this needs to be different. Like it's almost bothering him. Like he has to. Oh, he he. Uh, when it comes to. <laughs> You'll know this, as, as Chris will as well. My English ability is not the best; is not the greatest. He certainly doesn't get it from me. He gets it from my wife, who is um, very gifted when it comes to like anything English related, and he is he inherited that from her. Like he he reads. He, like we drove down somewhere. I think we drove for like an hour and a half, and he read two fifty-page books like in the time that we would like drive. He would just he would just nail books left, right, and center. He's he's very tuned into uh, stories and like reading and stuff. So he's all. About I'm not so well, but he, yeah. I think if we have one hope that we can hold on to for the future generations, you know, for our kids and the kids of our kids and the kids of their kids, it's that those who continue to read and consume novels and literature at the rate that your little one is doing, hopefully will go on to be great writers, you know, in their own right. Uh, so, and, and if there's one industry that needs those now more than ever, it's the video games industry. And in a completely unrelated segue, let's talk about Final Fantasy, the best written to series of all time. So I just, sorry, mate, I got completely distracted then um, in the chat. Because oh, what's happening? Someone in the chat, Jonathan Elam, said that he ran the test team on Red Dead for Rockstar Lincoln and went on to say that he worked for Rockstar for eight years and did a little on Red Dead Revolver, um, but... Uh, but oh, and then said working on um, Red Dead Redemption One broke him. And I was, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, at, at risk of derailing the entire pod, what was, what was the name? What was, the, what was the name again? Uh, that is Jonathan Elam in chat. So Jonathan, thank you. Shout out to Jonathan. Yeah, no, great to have you. Um, well, I think I'm right in saying that Red Dead Redemption was the uh, the game that was subject to the collective. I don't know if it was a lawsuit or just a collective complaint from the wives of video game developers. Do you remember that one? Oh, yes. Yeah, like, 
I think I think that was Red Dead yeah. One. So if that if that attests to any of what Jonathan was experiencing, yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird because we forget. Like obviously, there's a time when uh, when crunch and culture and everything became a really big deal. But obviously, it's easy to forget that everything before that um, was probably ten times worse. But we just never heard about it. Whereas now, then people are much more willing to talk about crunch, to talk about difficult situations and difficult yeah. environments and people and people inside the games industry. It's a very different world these days. Whilst it still goes on, it feels like people at least can voice some concerns these days. Yeah. Hopefully we're moving in a better direction, um, especially companies like Rockstar, who uh, e- even before things were sort of like being spoken about publicly, it felt like Rockstar always had a very dodgy reputation. So um, I hope Jonathan's in a, a better place uh, professionally now. Um, he, he can't be in a better place per- personally because he's watching this podcast. And Jonesy, the expert segue that I kind of, it doesn't really matter that you... you so sorry I ruined it. it. Well, I kind of half butchered it. What I was trying to do... You've got another go. I well, I was it. trying to. No, I'm, I'm just going to say I was just trying to make a joke at the expense of the writing of a franchise that you are now a little bit more intimate with, and that's Final Fantasy. Because if I see one more tweet talking about how Final Fantasy 16 is one of the best written games of all time, and then go and watch some of the cutscenes that <laughs> I've been watching, I'm going to lose my marbles. But then that's just me. I, so you warned me about this before I jumped into the demo, and uh, it, yeah, it's stark. Like. I was surprised how bad the pacing is. It's just weird, right? Like, it's very... It's that classic thing of things that have been localized well, but still don't always sound right. Voice actors that feel like they were in completely different rooms, different sessions that recorded six months apart from each other. Like, everything's stilted. And it all contributes and comes together to make, you know, like, a a narrative that I am engaged by and I do want to follow and cutscenes that are solid in their own right and it's a story that i want to see through and there are characters that i like and it's the exact same thing that i had with final fantasy 7 remake although i did describe that as stockholm syndrome by the end of it but it it is like sometimes when you take some there are snippets that you can take out of context and maybe that's unfair but the yes that they are very jarring i would so uh, i've i would say the first i'm i'm only sort of like two hours into final fantasy 7 remake but the, the difference between Final Fantasy and remake cutscenes and lines seems to be much more um, a translation issue, for, to my mind. Like stuff that sounds good in Japanese doesn't sound as good in English. And but the the pacing and the way that the lines are delivered is actually okay. It just sounds a little strange. Whereas for me, the cutscenes in Final Fantasy sixteen they they don't fit the gaps that they have. It may, and you'd think that they would just adapt them better. But yeah, exactly as you've said, there are some lines that downright feel like that people have, are reading from two different scripts. Um, and it, I often notice it with like a badly edited movie, like a B movie or something, where oh. you can tell that they've taken out a scene or they've left something in, but then there was a bit of dialogue which obviously is in reference to something which is no longer there. And it sounds weird. And you kind of go, oh. and but I had that feeling a couple of times with Final Fantasy sixteen. Um which yeah was very strange because I was like, oh, this isn't in- this is interesting how this um, the dialogue goes and how the cutscenes work. But if you brave it, brave it, and you go through that and you deal with it, I do. I can see why people. Well, given the short amount I've played, I can see why at this point people are really enjoying this video game. Yeah, especially like you. So you played the demo now. By the time you get to that demo, which you know, like it or lump it, forces players to sit through two hours of what, you know, the Final Fantasy 16 essentially is, which is, you know, 
um, very sort of like dramatic Game of Thrones inspired cutscenes, followed by fun action sequences, followed by over the top anime inspired cutscenes, and you know, rinse and repeat. But I think most people, uh, ourselves included, you get to the end of that uh, demo and see like the you know the scale of some. You see some of the story beats loop back around because there's a lot of in media res at the start of game at the game. You see the scale of some of those altercations that happen. Um, and the kind of the emotional payoffs and the emotional sort of uh, conclusions that it reaches, and you're like, actually, yeah, like this is this kind of works for 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 all its sins in a traditional sense. It's funny. I watched a documentary recently about Stan Lee, and he was talking about how him and Jack Kirby, when they were coming up with comics back in the day, the way that they would work, and it became like the Marvel process was um, Jack Kirby would, uh, or they they would have a conversation about where they wanted the story to go. Jack Kirby would go and draw the comic so the, and the story beats and stuff that they talked about. And then Stan Lee would then go back and retrofill in the story, um, mm. given the, the images that he had in front of him. And I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that that's what they did with Final Fantasy 16. If you said that the animators made the cutscenes and then the scriptwriters went back and tried to fill the holes, I would not be surprised. Yeah. That's kind of how it feels. It is weird. But as you, because what you see to my mind is more intriguing than what you hear um and then the dialogue fits with that but i'm kind of like ah oh, maybe the dialogue could have been better it's not game of thrones level whilst it's a very game of thrones story um but what's going on is and it totally isn't but some of it is yeah doesn't didn't really fit for me dialogue wise but really fit with me on a beat story beat level and i yeah. i was surprised at how much i enjoyed that demo and, and wanted more by the end and was inspired to go and watch a whole bunch of reviews that i hadn't watched um, started with uh, uh, skill ups, which I maybe shouldn't have started with. Yeah, he he wasn't too keen on it, was he? I think he said he starts the video by saying something like, uh, "Let me get this out of the way. This is one of the most highly regarded Final Fantasy games for a long time, and people are absolutely in love with this game. It's absolutely smashing on Metacritic. Now, let me tell you why I really don't like this game and think it's crap." <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Okay, but he, like, yeah, but he should. He, it's like I'm. I'm almost glad he did it, right? Because like, yeah, that's yeah. what you should be able to do. Like, it's all subjective at the end of the day. And you, I think you absolutely, and and that's why we, we've said this before. It's why you like certain critics is because you kind of a you yeah. align with what they say. You're not trying to get. They don't have to write about everything, but you learn to to agree with what critics say. And I, for one, like I uh, skill up for me was maybe a little bit unfair with a game like. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, which I really enjoyed, but I I agreed with most of his criticisms. Uh, and so when it's a game like this, I know that there's certain things in there that I might not like, um, and that some other people have said are really good. And he was he sort of said he doesn't like. So one thing I did, which I thought was smart, was rather than jumping in two feet into Final Fantasy 16, I went and picked up Final Fantasy 7 Remake um, because you can get that for free at the moment on the PlayStation Plus Store uh, and um, Integrate is it the second. Part. Yeah, and I and they, yeah, they they did the PS5 version of it as well, right? Which yes. I've never played, so yeah. So I've jumped. So I've jumped back into that with a view to like, if I want some Final Fantasy, that's what where I'm going to get it from at the moment. And then if I still want it by the end of this, then maybe I'll uh, hop into 16. How's it looking? What are the odds? Um, well, it is to go back to the combat system of seven is more tricky. Um. Right after playing sixteen, because uh, you know if people don't know, so so Final Fantasy obviously usually takes this team-based combat thing, and, it, and it's uh, a turn-based in in some ter in some respects, or well, in a lot of respects in some of the games. But they switch it up with the remake of Seven, 
um, where 16 goes completely to the, um, you play one character at a time and you're fighting like a normal action game. Um, yeah. And so it was odd to go back a step, but actually like, I'm still really enjoying it. I played, I played the demo for Remake before, Final Fantasy VII Remake before. Yes. Yeah. So I've, I've played what I've played again before. Um, and I think I've only just got to the part where you get to, is it Midgard and you meet Sephiroth for the, Sephiroth for the first, I can't, oh my God, I can't say that. You meet Sephiroth for the first time. Yeah, this is where we need Chris here to rem- remind us of, well, but I, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Because clouds have been like weird visions and stuff like that. The exactly point. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember that's where you meet Aerith for the, um, is it Aerith or Aerith? I always get it wrong. I'm, I don't um, remember. I haven't met her yet. I've um, I've just, oh. I've just left, uh, what's it who's the big the Mako reactor Barrett Bar- but I've just left Barrett and Jesse and then they're like meet up with us and then we'll split the money or whatever um, right okay some of that I think you're going to meet her in a second and it's where Cloud one of my favourite line slash line deliveries where he he's just met this person for the first time like they've never had a single interaction with complete strangers and she is like I think a flower seller or something like that oh I have met she- her the flower seller. Oh. I have met her. Sorry. Okay, I have. No, no, okay. I, she's important. <laughs> Spoiler alert. She's a, she's a big deal. Okay. And he, he she tries to give Cloud a a, a flower. Yes. And his reaction to being offered a flower is he, he says, "Look, I'm involved in things, dangerous things. So keep your distance." Imagine someone giving you a flyer, like someone from Oxfam or you know, you know, fucking you know, Cancer Research UK gives you a flyer and you say, "Look." I'm involved in things, dangerous things. So keeping it sounds you make it sound you're not you're not a human. You're not a human. You make it sound almost like uh, Liam Neeson. Like I have a particular set of skills. I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a flower, I can tell you I don't have money. Did you? I took the flower, so she offered it, and you can take the decision to like take it or not, I guess, or to so ever. And I was like, yeah, all right, give me the flower. Thanks for that. Oh, cheers. I sure hope that's a. I sure hope that that choice doesn't have uh, any impact on the sequel to that game, which still uh, I don't know when that's coming out. Uh, and I have also having not played the game that you're now playing for over three years. What a what an outrageous decision. Okay. Anyway, um, but ahead uh, of the demo, like Final Fantasy 16 demo, I enjoyed. I thought it was good. Uh, yeah, a bit weird on the dialogue front. Apparently, it's super heavy on the politics, um, which I am kind of into. Uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that I have a good time with the remake of seven and then I'll jump back into 16, but I'll give myself a little break. Yeah. There's a, I, 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 my feelings on 16 are still pretty positive at the moment. Um, like, especially if anyone played the demo was, and was kind of fascinated by the scale of some of those fights, I think it's common knowledge now that there are these icons in the game that are almost kaiju like, uh, monsters that have these massive battles and, uh, some of them are are so over the top, and so I don't know how else to describe them, but anime inspired. That's what, as someone who doesn't watch a lot of anime, that's almost what they felt like to me. Some of them almost kind of felt like they were the kind of like almost like what I felt was missing at times from the two recent God of Wars. Like they've had they had a lot of scale and a lot of spectacle, but there was still a voice in my head that was like, "Go further, go further." Yeah. Fun- 16 always goes manages to go further in my uh 10 hours or 12 hours or so of the game i I, it's good that they've said it but one thing i didn't like was you know when you sort of read you know you someone's read a line in in dialogue whatever um or sorry sorry from like a press kit and then you hear it in like four or five reviews 
is they kept talking about the fact of, I, I think I listened to three different reviews that all used the same line, which said, um, the icons were like weapons of mass destruction and were treated as such. And so it was like, uh, they had a right. mad associated with mutually assured destruction. So yeah. whilst you, they, people have their own icons, they're super hesitant to use them because it's like, well, if I use mine, they'll use theirs. But everyone kept using the same line of it's, it's like mad. It's, it's mutually assured destruction. I was like, come up with another, yeah. come up with another, um, I don't know what simile or something like. Let's not you come. Yeah. Let's not use the same one every time because then they just keep showing you people using them. Which I was like, well, so I, I was quite like, exactly what I was going to say. Which is that I remember hearing that as well in a couple of reviews, and that hasn't been true to the experience that I've had with Final Fantasy 16 so far. Right. And there are asterisks there. Um, there are a fair few people who I think accidentally turn into their icons uh, for one reason or another. That kind of happens in the demo to a certain extent, uh, where people are almost driven to it rather than actively triggering it triggering it um but yeah like if 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 become if at like if a dominant activating their icon or whatever the right terminology is was actually like a nuclear bomb um th there would be a lot less game left in final fantasy 16 than there is you know yes um so it's also strange um that uh which i, d I didn't realize until i watched the reviews and I, it would have been better I, maybe they couldn't have done it in the demo but they they don't really set up the fact that the people aren't necessarily in control like the icons are almost something separate to the person. So when you call when someone becomes an icon, that's also really speaking true though. Like there are right, okay. there are there are people who are very much in control of like when they're transforming, how much they transform, what they do when they're in that state, when okay. they come back out. There just seems to be a, there are a few characters who are either by their nature or by their circumstances kind of uh, emotionally unable to control. Uh, their you know their icons um interesting it sounds a bit like attack on titan um because in attack on titan there's people that can turn into titans um some few people who can and they kind of have the same thing and there's some do it by accident almost on reflex and don't know what they're doing and some do it on purpose and no yeah do it. well you you see it very early on even in the demo in that first battle where clive is with that small group of of assassins where uh titan um you you see he he's the he's the really big dude in that one meeting yep. who then has that weird kind of like not quite sex scene with that uh woman and then like then it cuts the battlefield and there's he's the massive dude who's walking around like stomping through the battlefield oh, and fights okay. the boss lady that's the same dude who was like eight foot tall in that meeting room scene oh right right yeah so, okay. like he's an example of like because there's also a weird thing of like some some cultures kind of this is also talked about extensively in reviews and previews but some cultures kind of like revere um uh dominance and they're like important people and some cultures enslave them because they almost want to use them as weapons right i think that those kind of elements often you know have an impact on on an individual relationship with their icon and so on and so forth and how it's utilized has your experience so far with the game been so i heard that like the game is 75 percent cutscene so it's getting up there for like kojima levels of cutscene i suppose is it is it does it feel too much or does it feel about right for sort of the level of story and the game of thrones sort of like political intrigue i feel like there are two questions once they i don't i think it's not 75 percent, and it doesn't feel like it ever gets to kojima lengths like I, I, I never felt like they'd outstayed their welcome, but there are a lot of them, right? Um, and I think one of the things that maybe doesn't help with the flow of moving in and out of cutscenes quite so much is the surprising degree of linearity in a lot of the hands-on moments between the cutscenes. 
there are a lot of just sequences that, that you one of which you kind of experience in the in the in the demo which is sort of like you're just moving through a bunch of combat scenarios with you know kind of like one sort of like hands off sort of like uh, transition between each combat arena for one of a better way of putting it that then culminates in a mini boss or a boss and then there's some kind of cutscene, and then it continues and there is kind of like a rhythm or a pattern to the way the game is playing out thus far right. that i could see would maybe become a little bit annoying for some people but i'm also interested enough in the story that there haven't been any kind of like wasted cutscenes per se yet okay um, uh but yeah uh, i'm curious to see i don't know how that's gonna lie it depends how long the game lasts me to be honest um which I think is going to be the other thing that sort of determines how frustrating or, you know, how you know easy to stomach that that those those elements might be. Time will tell, Jonesy. Right. Yes. Yes. We will see. Yeah. Um, also, in in a, a complete uh, sucking handbrake turn from Final Fantasy, I just wanted to give a shout out quickly to a game I've been playing on the Steam Deck lately called uh, Dave the Diver, um, which is uh, it's 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 not new it was it had been in early access for a little while but it has only just sort of gone 1.0 and been fully released um i think it is just available on pc um i picked it up on steam and it is one of those games a bit like cult of the lamb that kind of takes two sort of like very different elements and kind of mixes them together into one sort of like fun indie game uh the two elements are uh, for one half of the game you are the titular dave and you are diving um through uh these deep waters and you are using uh, either a harpoon or a number of different other weapons to catch um, various fish, and you can kind of upgrade your diving suit and your oxygen tank and your harpoon gun to go down deeper and catch bigger fish and stuff like that. Um, and then you go back to the surface and you store all the fish um, uh, that you have caught during the day, and when nighttime comes around, you are managing a sushi restaurant. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm serving the fish that you have just caught. And both it's one of those ones where both elements of the game are kind of have that addictive kind of but roguelike cycle but not in the punishing way that addictive upgrade right. cycle i should say but rather the roguelike um um lots of and, and there's also it's got a sort of like fun kind of like sense of character and sense of humor really cool um sort of pixel art style that is pleasant to look at from from a gameplay perspective but also has these really quite ambitious uh cut scenes and sort of like little vignettes that they play out for lots of characters cast of characters is also pretty engaging and fun um it's got a nice sort of like set like style about it and there's absolutely nothing stressful about it in my time thus far um like there is a kind of a you can run out of oxygen um and you lose you you lose everything you're carrying apart from one thing of your choice but so far like there's no real stress to the game and that's actually quite nice to just go out during the day and catch fish and then and then there are you meet npcs and there are quest givers and there are people who come along who want very specific dishes. So I've had one point where I had to go and find and kill a shark, which um, was not easy. But then you kind of can then serve a shark-themed dish to this one person. And when I befriended them, they unlocked a new kind of element of the management sim part of the game, where now I can hire additional employees to help me in the sushi restaurant. And it's yeah, it's that kind of cycle. People that, might know what I'm talking about. That's uh, no, I like that. That sounds that sounds good. Like really nice in the sense of be so easy and and usually is for it i thought and i thought you were going to say that what you collect all your fish you store it all and then at night it's like a survival horror and you're fending off people from trying to take your fish or something or like a kraken tries to take your fish or like 
something does and, and I was going to be like, why do they always feel the need to do that? So to, for it to be a sushi restaurant is, um, yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, worth taking a look at. I think it was overwhelmingly positive on Steam last time I checked. It seems like this again is winning a lot of people over. So nice. Give it a quick shout out. Um, um, because I think, Jonesy, that we should always take moments where we can to celebrate uh, successful video games, celebrate acclaimed video games, because if there's one thing that we have learned over the course of our lives, let alone this podcast, it's that making video games is hard. Um, and that's a lesson that no one has learned more so in the in recent months than our old friends, Daedalic Entertainment, um, a German video game, well, developer slash publisher now German publisher, yes. uh, to kind of <laughs> jump into the meat of the story right away. Um, for anyone that doesn't recognize the name Daedalic Entertainment, you probably do recognize the name uh, The Lord of the Rings Gollum, because that was a title that released um, earlier this year and quickly went on to become the lowest rated game of the year on both major uh, major aggregation sites, Metacritic and OpenCritic. Um, absolutely derided. One of those games that streamers and YouTubers start playing just because they've heard about how... Um, broken and bad it is and while that was all fun and games at the time jonesy um i'm not sure it would... <laughs> the ramifications for it are, are, are deeper and darker than maybe we'd imagined uh, there was actually as we were joking about in recent weeks another lord of the rings game in development at daedalic we read out um the kind of the uh, the logline they'd given to the german government right to, to get yes. a grant um that's not happening anymore um and neither is anything else all internal projects including development on that other Lord of the Rings game that started in 2022, will be stopped, and the company will focus on publishing, licensing, sales, and marketing going forwards. That they Daedalic Entertainment of Lord of the Rings Gollum fame are no longer developing video games. Now, it, it's uh, important to note at this stage that before we, you know, you know, start laughing our heads off, that uh, Daedalic have confirmed that around 25 employees, or at least 25 employees, are going to be affected, which is always a shame, um, and um, I wish them all the very best of luck on uh, in landing on their feet in this industry or the next. But Josie, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know how to react to this. It's a, it's a dark, it's a dark ending for what was a, a begin, beginning to feel like a story that felt okay to laugh at. Yeah, it is. It's one of these weird ones because it, it's when you when you can sort of frame something to your own mind that it was a company who were like taking the money, doing the bare minimum, uh, trying to turn a profit off of a well-known franchise and then making a pile of crap. Then that's that. And then they get their comeuppance by having the lowest, you know, scoring game of the year. That's funny. Uh, that is, that's you getting your just desserts. But then when you get to this point and they, they say, do you know what? It's actually quite sad. We, we're going to stop from this point on. It's difficult for us to do this, but we're going to, we're going to stop developing games. And as you said, 25 people's jobs are at risk. But at the same time, like, it can be sad and funny at the same time, and it can be kind of deserved. It, we um, we talked about Arcane, I think, in the week, and we sort of said how it would be very silly to kind of think of them in the same breath um, as it would like Daedalic, because whilst they had a bad time with Redfall, um, they have a pedigree. Whereas I think if you're going right. to come out of the blocks with a game like Gollum, um, it's such a big title with such a big franchise attached like such an untested studio and then try and and then and then accept more money off the back of like you know 
from to do another one without even knowing how your first one was written. They, they knew this game was trash. When they, they knew when they took that, the money from the government, this game was trash. They knew that it, it probably is a game that should have been vaporware, like at some point, and accidentally yeah, came out wrong. Like accidentally got made, came out, and was awful. Um, right. And it's not it's not oh, meant like, to be for every source, company. The source code of the nearly finished Lord of the Rings Colony game just leaked online. That Ex- exactly. And then and then do you know what happened? We'd look at the game in its in its state and say, Jesus, it's a good thing this game never came out. And then fans or p- potential fans would have said, no, you can't say that. This was only, this was alpha. This would have changed massively before it got released. And then we know in this instance, that's not the case. And this is how it would have come out. Um, and, 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 you know, it doesn't mean that these, uh, they're never going to make another game again. It just means for the time being, obviously, that's not on the cards for them and maybe stick with publishing, uh, licensing, yeah. sales and marketing stuff. And to be fair, from from what I remember looking at their Wikipedia um, around the time that this uh, the, uh, the the Golden Game was coming out, I was more familiar with some of the titles they published than any of the kind of the the smaller titles they developed themselves. A lot of which seemed to be sort of like point and click adventures and and things of that nature. Um, is is it too negative of me though to like look at that and say? It was a it was a smallish or or let's say a growing team or a growing studio who had taken on a lot of low pretty low key projects in the past, but they wanted to do something bigger. They wanted to do something they hadn't done before. They wanted to do something ambitious. They got access to an IP that they probably never dreamed they'd have access to, and they dreamed big, and now they're paying the price. It, like, is it pessimistic of me to ask if this then becomes like a kind of a warning, kind of like flare, like a like a like a sort of a, a cautionary tale, for want of a better way of putting it, for overly ambitious independent studios in the future. I think I think it should be when they're tied to such a big IP. Like I, I don't think there's any issue releasing this game if it's a if it's a new IP from a from a new studio or from a small studio, um, and it's completely unrelated. Some people might have liked it. Some people might have said, "Oh no, I I think this is um." Uh, you know, I oh know this is this has got some fun to it. This is just a game I can tool around in for a, for a couple of hours. It's fine, but I think when you attach a massive IP to a game and you don't have the chops to maybe pull it off, you've kind of um, screwed yourself. Um, and then then the question of why would you do like why do that? Why put that much pressure on your team on your developers? Why not start somewhere like I think this this happened with the Wachowskis right back in the day. They wanted to make the Matrix. They said, "I'm gonna, we're gonna make this insanely big, like trilogy, all this other stuff." And I think yeah. Warner Brothers said, "Nah, no, you aren't. That's crazy." Um, so they gave them, they let them make some smaller stuff to sort of prove themselves, and they did uh, prove themselves. And then they went off and made the Matrix. Like, let someone prove themselves before. Maybe they should have made a a resource gathering, um, adventure driven, 3D game that basically no one played to prove they could do it, and then make yeah. Yeah, so that so that someone who controls the IP can come in, look at one of their recent projects, and be like, "We want you to make that, but with this IP." Like, um, uh, hopefully not identical. Hopefully not actually reusing any of that stuff. But yeah, yeah. Or the flip side that I was you reminded me of is um, saying yes to the IP, like saying yes to the idea, like the like the the the, yeah, the offer, but pitching back something that is just something that far more restrained. And buying into that idea that just because you're using like a earth-shatteringly large IP, uh, something with global recognition, doesn't mean you have to make your first AAA game. It doesn't mean it has to be a third-person action adventure <laughs> game. And I just looked them up to, rem- to remind myself exactly what it is. Uh, Bithel Games, um, founded, of course, by Mike Bithel, 
Um, they uh, got the they did a they got the John Wick's uh, John Wick IP and went right. on to make John Wick Hex, which was a re- relatively kind of like compact and restrained like kind of sort of like turn based kind of like take on the John Wick formula again. Rather than saying, "Oh, we got the John Wick formula, we got to make Max Payne four, but John Wickified kind of thing," which is like sounds like a recipe for disaster. And they did again, um, I think earlier this year when they got the Tron IP and they made Tron Identity, which is just a a visual novel with a really clean, simple art style. And exactly, don't get me wrong. Like you might limit your reach, you might limit the amount, you know, the size of your your audience. Um, but as long as your partners as long as the people who are like you're licensing that that ip from are kind of on board they know what you're making you know everyone's agreed in terms of the budget everyone's agreed in terms of the sales expectations there's still a way to make all parties happy without trying to make like you know like i said a triple a third person action adventure game in the lord of the rings universe when you've got no experience doing so it would have made so much more sense to me for a studio like this to have turned around and said do you know what we're making a metroidvania 2d um, like get a game where Gollum goes out and, tr- and jacks treasure from people and and tries to you know and goes through changing dungeons and da 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 and people would have absolutely loved that. Like you would have had a massive cohort of people that would have just been into it because it was like the right sort of game. They would have gone, oh yeah, I've always wanted a game, and it, it could have been almost cookie cutter as long as they'd done a good job of the visuals, it played well, had a decent frame rate, and it would never have to have, have been you know such a insane um, like challenge on the on the development side in the first place like it would have needed a lot of love and a lot of time and care and writing but at least it wouldn't have been something which is so difficult to do in this day and age anyway like to just get on the same footing as some games that we're used to now yeah no for sure um an interesting one lessons learned i'm sure by those at data lick lessons learned by those who are looking or watching on from around the world ourselves included one thing that will be interesting to see now though is well i guess first of all where did data lick go next and and is there kind of any extra heat, any extra attention, uh, for better or for worse, on the next project they end up publishing? Um, and but I think that also, uh, uh, as we've joked about before, when the, when a game was announced during Summer Game Fest, I think it was, also applies to the future of Lord of the Rings games in general. Uh, to what to what extent has the name of Lord of the Rings in terms of you know, video games been besmirched, besmirched? By Gollum, we'll find out, I guess. But will, will Gimli game be re- be received well, or will it? Uh... Gimli game. The fact that we still call it a Gimli game isn't the best sign at the moment, is it? Take a guess at what that game is called. I'm going to look it up. Oh God, is it uh, something like Lord of the Rings: The Dwarven Kingdom or some bullshit like that? Um, you're not far off. I. It's Lord of the Rings: Return to to Mariah, Mor- Moria, 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 Moria. Moria. Mariah sounds like Mariah Carey. I'd love that. I'd, that would be the crossover Return I want. Mariah. Lord of the Rings Return to Me and Mariah. Um, yeah. Uh, Nick Cannon wouldn't be too happy. Yeah, no. I'd, I'd get the feeling that guy's never happy. You can't... Is that the guy with like 15 children? Uh, I don't know. Is he, I thought he was Mariah Carey's husband. Or is he, is he ex? They were married for a while. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I might be getting people mixed up. Um, he was I just one, feel like there's a... Eminem did the diss track about Mariah and called out Nick Cannon. Okay, so yeah, Nick Cannon, uh, we are thinking of the same person. He uh, And he was married to Mariah Carey for eight years, and he has 12 children. So wow. we were we were correct on all fronts. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I'm, I might be speculating here, but I want to say he has something where... I bet I'm none of sure. them with Mariah Carey, though. I can't imagine she's had any kids. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I... I uh... 
No, Nick Cannon does have kids with Mariah Carey. Okay, she has two children, and they're both uh, both with him. Uh, I think they were twins. One second, I've just lost my place. Yeah, they were fraternal twins, uh, but then they got divorced. Um, and then, yeah, it just says on Wikipedia from 2020 onwards, Cannon attracted significant media attention for fathering a large number of children with multiple partners. You know, you've gotten to a weird place when Wikipedia. I mean, it does go on to give more detail. But when Wikipedia, before it even gets to the details, like, let's wrap this up and just say, look, there are a lot of kids here with a lot of partners. We're going to do our best to kind of let you know where they all are. But we don't even know where some of them are. He's trying to Genghis Khan it. He's trying to put it about so he can have a legacy. Yeah. Maybe it's one of those things where, like, the more kids you have, the more likely it is that one of them becomes like an NFL superstar. <laughs> Maybe. More likely you are to get put in the nicest home available. Um, yeah. Very true. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of a of a segue now, going from Nick Cannon's fathering of twelve children <laughs> to um, let me let me think. Um, uh, uh, let, let me let, I don't know. Let's just now now that I left the gap too big, I've been hyping it up too much. <laughs> um, all I was going to say was that if Nick Cannon is hedging his bets uh, and trying to secure his future. Um, uh, by having as many as 12 children with a number of different partners, then Microsoft are certainly trying to secure secure their futures by continuing to fight tooth and nail against the FTC in that sort of court case that we started talking about last week. Um, how does that work, Jesse? I'll allow it. It wasn't your best, but it wasn't your worst. Look, do you know what? Like, it's 11 o'clock. We've been going for a little while, again, <laughs> trained. I was about to say it's been a long week, but it's Monday, um, so... <laughs> Feels like it has already. <laughs> yeah. If you told me today was Friday and we've got the weekend tomorrow, I'd be like, Do you know you're right. Goodness. Not just thank God, but we've earned this. When in fact yeah. I have worked for eight hours today. Um so look, Jojo, we talked about this last week because most of the proceedings had actually sort of taken place by then. But I think by the time we recorded last week's podcast, there was still a day or two of these proceedings left to go. And of course, when you have fucking, you know, you know, superstars like um, Satya Nadella taking the stand, you know you're going to get a bunch of great headlines. Um, although a lot of the best headlines and a lot of things that I wanted to talk to uh, you about today largely come um, uh, from Sony inadvertently revealing sensitive information uh, due to um, the poor redaction of a number of documents. Um, so for anyone who, who want, and a lot of their stuff, even though I think the the, the place that it was all uploaded for public consumption, they've taken it all down because of such a shit show. But obviously people who saved those documents and shared them on social media are still available. But essentially Sony put forward a number of different documents. A black marker was used to kind of redact certain parts of it, but the way it was scanned meant that most of the numbers, which were redacted, are still uh, vis uh, still visible. I wanted to start, Jonesy, with um, some Call of Duty engagement numbers and see if any of this kind of uh, intrigues you. Uh, this is from 2021. Over 14 million users uh, by device. I think this is by 2021. You're talking about PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. Spent 30% or more of their time playing Call of Duty. 6 million users spent more than 70% of their time on Call of Duty. And then finally, this is the one that always fascinates me. About 1 million users spent 100% of their gaming time on Call of Duty. Is that more or less than you expected? 1 million people who only, only, only play Call of Duty. I think that's less. Uh, 
Oh, it's tricky. I, I was going to say less, but then I'm thinking. I, I kind of think of some players as like dual dual game players. Like they play, they've got a, they play COD and yeah. they play something else. So like Madden, yeah. NBA, Two K, FIFA. Exactly. Like to level out. The, they don't just play COD. They've got two games on the go, and that's all they do. Um, that's that's all they do. So I actually, yeah, no, 100% of your time on COD is is somewhat surprising to me. Um, that is a hell of a commitment to uh, to the world of Call of Duty. Yeah. Especially when you think about the fact that if you're playing Call of Duty, presumably you're playing the multiplayer if you're doing this. So you have PlayStation Plus. So you're getting given free games every month. <laughs> These people are looking at stuff like that and saying, no, I'm not even downloading it, not touching it. I've just played Call of Duty, which... It, that's where I get to the point where I think that you were kind of getting to, which is that although 1 million doesn't sound like a lot, that's still a lot of people who just like won't bat an eyelid at a different game. And like 1 million also doesn't sound like a lot because it's Call of Duty, but there are fantastic games out there that would love to sell a million units. Yes. Full stop. It's God, oh, this is going to sound really bad and I don't, I don't even really mean it, but I kind of do. The, the way that I, the way that I think of a 100% Call of Duty player is not that dissimilar to how I think of a mum who plays Candy Crush, and they both get called. Oh, me! And they both get called like video game players. It's not. It's not the same. I would say it's not the same. If you're playing COD, and especially if you're good at it, you are. You're playing a real game, like absolutely one hundred percent. But to not even delve into the rest of the video game world, especially if you're just playing multiplayer. I'm like, man, branch out. And if you and if you want to call yourself a gamer and you're a mum who plays Candy Crush on your phone and you want to use that moniker for yourself, branch out. You need to play some more games. It can just be on Apple Arcade. It doesn't have to be on a, on a PlayStation or an Xbox. Just try some more stuff. I get what you mean. I, I, it's a difficult one. I, I, I'm not. I've traditionally not been a fan of gatekeeping the um like the term gamer or anything like that. Like, so it's just such a weird term anyway. And I think every every time I see someone do that on social media, I'm reminding I remind myself, hey, never do that because that person looks like a fucking virgin. Right? <laughs> um, I, would never say, I would never say you're you can't call, somebody who plays COD. I would never be like you're not a gamer. Like, I wouldn't say that. I would maybe say to someone who plays their only game is like one mobile game. But no, maybe I wouldn't yeah. actually. No, that's not fair because I was I was just thinking you might then popped into my head like I used to absolutely love Tetris. Like as a kid, I played hours and hours of Tetris. And if someone said to me. Ah, uh, you're not a gamer. You just play Tetris. Yeah, I would have been like, "Screw you, man!" Especially when you get into some of like the most competitive multiplayer games out there. Like Call of Duty is an example of them. But if you ever met someone who exclusively played League of Legends, exclusively right. played Dota, uh, CS:GO, Valorant, something like that, like you would not just consider them a gamer. You would consider them a, a pretty hardcore gamer. A lot more hard than me, yeah. Yeah, and so like that's one of those interesting ones where they can play one game, but that the game they play is the thing that defines whether or not they're a game. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you're right. I take it all back. Well, so it, it, it's, it's, no, it, it's, it's very true. Well, Phil Spencer will certainly have them because if they're going to keep throwing around that like three billion number or whatever <laughs> it is, they need people with you know, they need like a ninety year old who has a game and watch in a cupboard somewhere to still count for that number to float. So, um, um, also, um, let's 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 talk money a little bit, dollars and cents. One of the other things that was accidentally confirmed via Sony's um, poorly redacted uh, documents was that uh, Call of Duty software accounted for over $1 billion in sales on PlayStation consoles in 2021. That's, of course, perhaps another reason why Microsoft would be stupid to not continue to sell uh, that series on, on Sony's platforms. But the two things that really um, caught people's eyes and subsequently made headlines, Jonesy, 
were uh, some, again, poorly redacted information that Sony were providing around basically modern day development of games. And they picked out two of their own titles, Horizon Forbidden West and The Last of Us Part Two, and in both cases outlined the budget, uh, how many people worked on those games, and how long they were worked on for. Um, I'm going to save the budgets to last because I think it's fascinating. So Horizon Forbidden West was worked on by 300 employees for five years. The Last of Us Part Two was worked on for, by, by around 200 people for over five years. The budgets, though, respectively, so Horizon, 212 million dollars the last was part two 220 million dollars and the reason this was fa fascinating before i kind of get your thoughts on those numbers and how eye-watering they are is because um one of the things i kind of pulled from the vgc article here that i was looking at is that it was already known that modern AAA games cost up to and perhaps even over 100 million dollars to make this is one of the first times um we've seen kind of budgets of games at this scale kind of laid bare in such a way um, Sean Layden, who of course was at Sony previously, talked about how he thought that um, budgets on sort of like AAA blockbuster games, whatever you want to call them, was sort of getting out of hand and seemed to be doubling each generation. And one of the interesting things I did was I pulled up the Wikipedia article of the list of the most expensive video games to develop of all time. Yep. Now, um, I will say that Last of Us Part Two and Horizon Forbidden West have also have now been retroactively added to this document to this wikipedia article but they weren't there last week what is number one and is a unique case is of course star citizen because they have included right. the uh, ongoing crowdfunding as a part of that game's budget which brings it to a 415 million dollar budget but the which, previous which is which is bold like i i don't like that as a i mean no i suppose it that I, yeah that's a weird one for me um, I mean, but that's that, that's not the that's not the point of the argument, though. No, no, I, yeah, I get. That's crowdfunding. Sorry, go on. But previously, the number two was Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, which um, had a stated budget of one hundred seventy four million. It then drops down to Battlefield four at one hundred million, Shadow of the Tomb Raider at seventy five, Watch Dogs at sixty eight, um, and one thing you're probably already noticing by the by the names of Battlefield four, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Watch Dogs. Dead Space 2 at 60, that, those games were released in 2013, 2018, 2014, and 2011, respectively. So what I was reminded of looking at this Wikipedia article is that companies are not forthcoming on how much video <laughs> games cost. Because, um, yeah. because The Last of Us Part 2 and Horizon Forbidden West have, according to this Wikipedia article, become the second and third most expensive video games of all time. That's if you include Star Citizen. If you discount Star Citizen because of the crowdfunding, they'd become the most expensive and second most expensive games of all time, which to me is just a translation for the most expensive and second most games that we know the budgets of, huh. of all time. Yeah, um, that's, that is a real, that's the, what we're actually learning, is that we don't know how much modern games cost to produce. Yes, which is kind of, kind of fascinating, right? In a, in a, in a weird way. It is, and I suppose the reason being is that there's a lot of hay made around the movie industry that they, they do tell you how much um, it costs to make movies and the marketing budgets, and it's very... Uh, everyone's very vocal about a flop, right? They, they put this term of flop, and if, if... like So, for example, I think Indiana Jones, I saw today in the, in the, um, in the news, they were saying that it had made something like $60 million um, in its first weekend, and then they were yeah. saying it's going to be really hard. For, oh, based on this number, it's going to be really hard for Indiana Jones to make its money back. And then, so and then it's almost like then a race against time and a weird kind of. It's almost like a shorting situation where 
you say it's going to be a flop, which puts people off seeing it, maybe, which means that it's more likely to be a flop. It, it, you just get a very strange situation um, just by adding the word flop. Like, oh, it, it, and flop can be... If you spent a billion dollars on a movie, it doesn't matter how good the movie was, doesn't matter how many people saw it, it's always it's going to be a flop. And I think that is what video game developers and publishers want to avoid, which is probably why they don't want those numbers out there because they don't want third parties to be able to like throw dirt at them like that. As far as they're concerned, they have their metrics, which is what Metacritic says, um, like the critic scores, and I guess the, like the number of concurrence and stuff like that, which is what people like, like to look at. They don't want you to know this is how much it costs. This is how much we made, and this is how much in the hole we are because <laughs> it because it didn't yeah. make enough. Yeah, you're right. I think that's an interesting kind of reason to look at the maybe like the the, so, the potential social or kind of the the more speculative impact of uh, budget numbers being public. One of the other things I was wondering about, though, especially especially, especially interesting when we got these numbers from Sony, because when we watched their showcase um, a couple of weeks ago now, maybe a month ago plus, um, obviously Spider Man Two was there, and I think Spider Man Two, who'd expect. Oh, Outside of the fact that Insomniac seemed to be able to work devilishly fast, it probably keeps costs down. Spider-Man 2 is in this ballpark, um, or thereabouts, probably slightly lower though. But a lot of it, that uh, the aftermath of that showcase was spent talking about how Sony aren't necessarily rushing into the next Horizon, the next Last of Us, the next Ghost of Tsushima, and are now spending a lot more time looking at their kind of like the live service elements of their um, of of their kind of you know their first party out uh, output. And they announced, um, uh, what was it called? Concord? Was that one of them? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and then Bun- Bungie are bringing back uh, Marathon. Marathon. And, and, and again, uh, the game I always want to call Fail Safes, but it's not Fail Safes. It's something like that. Um, <laughs> it's, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, not yeah. Fail Safes. It's something really similar to that. Um, I remember how they said it. It's, it's but, spelled weird as well. Uh, I guess my question is, what I'm sure there will be another Last of Us at some point, and probably another Horizon at some point, and so on and so forth. Do you think that we have already seen kind of, or we have already maybe reached the point of no return on some of these budgets, where someone is looking at how much the Last of Us Two ultimately cost? And that Last of Us Two was a game that came out three years ago at this point, so it's two hundred twenty million dollars of a game like that. that yeah, in. I don't, don't get me wrong, adjusting for inflation wouldn't make that much difference in three years. But they, someone must have looked at it and said, okay, cool, this game's going to sell. We're probably going to make a profit on this. Also, we're never doing this again. No, I don't think it's going to happen at all. Um, and, and one of the reasons, and maybe for a time, I think there's two things, and you've touched on one. So the service games model, I imagine that if someone like Sony, um, they're probably thinking, Jesus, if we could get a game uh, with a live service model, something like Grand, Th- Grand, Theft, Auto- Grand Theft Auto V, we would be laughing. We'd be making money hand over fist and that would pay us enough money to make all the friggin' Last of Us 2s and for Forbidden Wests we want um, to like do that level of like super insanely high quality game, um, you know, without as much risk associated. But then I think on the other side of it for me, and I know there's a lot of people sort of like to how this is going to affect games in general, but um, the way that AI is developing at the moment, I think the thing that AI is really good at and, and will be utilized is things that humans are already good at but takes humans too long to do but ai is not good at coming up with like if you wanted to come up with an idea or a script for a video game ai is a terrible example i think for that personally i think because it's only just gonna it's gonna regurgitate what other people have done in a new format not particularly well you're never going to get to the level of a a a human game writer especially at the moment 
But what you could do is massively draw down on the development time, uh, on like level design, on you know uh, No Man's Sky when they obviously made their um, uh, they, their planets through uh, what was it? what do they call it? Uh, procedural generation. Thank you, procedural generation. One of the problems you have is you then can't go look at all those planets and see how shit they are because you, there's just too many of them. But how yeah. about implementing some AI that can go and look at 10,000, 100,000 planets and go, well, this is shit. Uh, we just want to tweak some of how this is working. Like AI can do that sort of stuff. So I actually think that maybe we will see a, 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 a sort of tailoring off of spending that much money for a, for a period, but you might then find efficiencies and AI and um, machine learning coming in to make mm. the whole process smoother. And then you'll start to see that sort of money thrown at it. But you should then see, hopefully, um, massive amount of reward for your work. Like we'll finally get the game that has branching narratives and we can actually have 20 different outcomes at the end of the game without it being insanely big and unwieldy and, and horrendous. You know, maybe that actually will become a thing of reality. Interesting. That was a far more uh, positive and 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 ambitious answer than I was actually um, expecting. So thank you. You reminded me of... Um... Well, I, I don't know if the real guy said it, but did, did you ever see the film Steve Jobs? No. Um, there's a, I mean, it's. I think it's, it was written by Aaron Sorkin, so naturally it has lots of sort of like great lines and great little anecdotes. But there's one where he's talking about you know his vision for creating uh, PCs or Macs uh, in his case, um, and talking about um, uh, energy efficiency amongst animals when in locomotion and. Um, that human, when you look at like uh, 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 locomotion efficiency and animals ranked, humans are about a third of the way down the list. And like the top most of, uh, locomotion uh, efficient animal in locomotion is like some bird. Well, when you give humans a bicycle, they become the most efficient uh, uh, <laughs> right. animal. And he said that the right PC or the right Mac can be a bicycle for the mind. And exactly. That's, so the, um, anyone who's used uh, like ChatGPT will tell you that and we've talked about this ChatGPT is not good if you want to like try and um come up with like ideas or try and like uh you know come up with new stuff it can it, but what it can do and that we've used it for on the podcast and things before you can say to it hey man here's a shitload of stuff that we've written can you give me the keywords from this list of stuff and it will go yeah i can do that blah, 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 blah. or you say to it hey man I, i'm trying to code something give me the code for this. And then it says, here you go. And you go, well, that doesn't quite work. Can you tweak the code or look at the code again and tell me what's wrong with it? Like it, that, that human machine interaction is where it's at. And I think with video games, imagine like being, because and from the double, double fine with their um, uh, documentary that they did, um, one of the things to me that really jumped out was you had um, designers and uh, developers kind of getting into a little bit of a tussle where they would say, I want to do this. And the developer would be like, okay that's going to take some time and then they would do it and then they would show the the you know the writers the whoever it was that had the idea the designers and they'd be like yeah that's not really what i wanted and you'd, you'd do and they'd go away again and they'd make something else and you'd be like man imagine being able to block out a level in half an hour rather than a month and it doesn't have to be the end of the process but that at least you know you're in the right place before you go yeah man this isn't working and you've just lost a month if we certainly, if we get to those point, the point where those timescales are accurate and the and the results are actually useful, then then yeah, that could be really meaningful. Uh, I I don't I don't know what to think anymore because I, I I you know I've got Jonesy on one shoulder telling me about how how great it can be if we if used in the right way, 
and I've got people making, you know, Wes Anderson director, what if Wes Anderson directed Star Wars on the other shoulder to make you want to kill myself? So, <laughs> um, I kind of split down the middle on AI at the moment. Um, yeah. Um, do you know what else we split down the middle on? on. Microsoft's acquisition strategies. Because um, if we uh, swing back over to the Microsoft side of things, and this stuff actually wasn't redacted, I don't think, although like it seems to be that some of this wasn't meant to become quite as public as it did right. end up becoming. Um, essentially, I just wanted to touch on the fact that uh, one of the exhibits that ended up uh, uh, being added to the list was a list of, initially around 100 developers and publishers that Microsoft and Xbox considered potential candidates for acquisition. Um, and this was all, they, um, they they called it part of their consideration set. Um, so of that 100 companies uh, listed there were the likes of Bloober Team, of course, working on that Silent Hill 2 remake at the moment, CD Projekt Red, um, Harmonics were there, From Software were there. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the list now. Um, it, it, it's it's weird because even like Microsoft formatted, like you can tell someone's like made it internally on there. <laughs> um, other publishers were there, like Devolver and Annapurna. Basically, they they used Xbox Game Pass data, Steam data, and existing development partners and relationships to come up with a list of 100 companies. They then put that through uh, uh, filtering, um, excluding. Um, uh, they basically had a bunch of rules. They wanted to exclude developers that had no original IP experience, uh, exclude developers that were followers and didn't innovate, excluding right. anyone that didn't that was recently acquired, excluding anyone that was already a AAA publisher. Blah 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 blah. And it ended up the final list, a top a final list of seventeen uh, candidates um, for for consideration. Um, two publishers, Paradox Interactive and Sega. Um, uh, four developers in Behavior Interactive, People Can Fly, Cowsmark, of course, got snapped up by Sony in the end, and Remedy, but I think it's still independent. Um, actually, no, I think Epic did a deal with Remedy. Anyway, that's been the handle right. there. And a bunch of um, self-published developers, including Bungie, who did, a, of course, did went to Sony as well, Crytek, um, IO Interactive were there, uh, Playdead, who made that Limbo and Inside and stuff, they were, st they were there, Rebellion, Supergiant, um, yeah, a very interesting list. Uh, it seems as though also one of the one of Phil Spencer's favorites was uh, Sega, and in an internal email that also got added uh, as a part of this court case, uh, Phil Spencer said, Sega is the most attractive next acquisition target due to its global PC catalog, presence on mobile in Asia, and global brand affinity on console through its classic IP. We talked a little bit last week about uh, Microsoft's inter interest in Sega. It's interesting now having it in black and white that... That that was what they were one of the publishers left on that whittled down list. That Spencer himself was personally sending emails saying how excited he was about them. But that also they got to a point where like someone at Microsoft generally thought like how how should we look at buying from software? Should we look at bu uh, buying IO? You know, I love that those conversations, all those thoughts took place. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I, 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 it's it's. But then it just becomes a who's. It does, I suppose, that list and the, their filters does become the who's who of who would you want to own. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is why some of the companies that they looked at all the way right up to a bit of the end have now since gone on to be owned by someone else. In the case of like Bungie and Housemark and, and so on and so forth. It's almost surprising then that they that they didn't get more of those companies because we were talking about last week about how much money Microsoft have, and you'd think that if they decided that they really wanted someone, that they 
you'd think that they would be able to go out and buy them. But I suppose, yeah, no, it's, it's surprising that they didn't just get more of those companies. But maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't ready to, or maybe in the end they decided not to. It's I'm surprised yeah. at how the Sega thing and what Spencer Phil Spencer said about Sega surprises me. Like, if you said to me, who are one of the most exciting like developers with their own IP? I don't think like Sega in 2020 or whatever 2022 would have been. Yeah. Especially when you consider that Square Enix were also there, and we also now know that there was an internal project called Project Phoenix, which was a Microsoft project um, that like that referred to a potential bid for Square Enix that also was part of their um, their move to kind of grow Xbox's influence in Asian markets. Um, and of course, while Square Enix did eventually sell off its um, Western development arms and IP to Embracer Group. Um, uh, Xbox were interested in some of their Eastern franchises like Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and Kingdom Hearts. Um, what I think was interesting about the Sega thing and the Square Enix thing is that they were both rumors that emerged at the time, and I think publicly, Phil Spencer shot down both of them. At the very least, Phil Spencer publicly shot down the Square Enix one and was like, no, that's not true. And now we know like that was 100% true, and it even had a project name internally at Microsoft. So that's just another interesting wrinkle, I guess, in this story is that the next time a CEO comes out and says, yeah, we've got no interest in buying that company, they could just be lying. Well, yeah, surprise, surprise, they might not be telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. Um, an interesting one. Um, and uh, I think what well, the other thing that's going to be very interesting to see is that while the entire games industry has been fixated on Microsoft's attempted acquisition of Activ Activision Blizzard King over the past... I don't even know how long it's been rumbling on now. I think the thing that's going to be really interesting is where Microsoft go next, even if they do uh, successfully acquire Activision Blizzard, because I don't think Microsoft also are done yet. I think the arms race will probably continue a little while longer. Um, Jonesy, let's uh, wrap this up, if you don't mind, by talking about one of those uh, one of those publishers there that we actually just mentioned that were almost a part of that arms race, but have remained uh, independent in their own way, and that has allowed them to procure a, a very highly regarded and highly sought-after label of independent video games that they publish, and that is Annapurna Interactive, uh, who recently, um, and what is, I'm guessing, probably like the last of the Mohicans and the summer announcements <laughs> things, um, they had a showcase this past week. They did. I love a bit of Annapurna. Um, Good sh shout-out. Yeah. Interactive. And uh, true to form, they had a number of things that look uh, equally as different to one another as they did look uh, intriguing and exciting and potentially worth playing. Um, one of the things that I think caught both of our eyes, just because it's the first internally developed video game from Annapurna Interactive, is actually a Blade Runner game. Uh, it's Blade Runner 2033 Labyrinth. Um, we don't know very much about it, but there is a, uh, an atmospheric announcement trailer that's out there already. And like and I say that, we, so we know that it's internally developed. Um, an interesting move, I guess. One that I don't. I guess I didn't think they'd ever really need to do, but I can see why maybe they wanted to. It's it's interesting because we obviously talked about Daedalic and how they came out. You know, met, decided they were going to put out like a big IP game, and then for Annapurna to say, "Oh yeah, we're going to make like a Blade Runner game." Yeah, uh, we, it could in some respects be seen as a little bit similar. I think, but realistically, I think Annapurna have got such a good track record of of um, publishing. Uh, you'd think that, like they've they've published some phenomenal indie games and that, and, and you'd think that they really would have their heads screwed on with what they're doing. They're not going to do anything silly when it comes to like putting out a title. It's actually, I think it's actually 
um, a really cool step for them to actually put out uh, their own game and to be developing something in house. I, I, you know, I, I, I like them as a publisher. I don't think I need them to be a developer as well. But I, there's just something about knowing that they're also doing that on the inside. I think is quite a nice step. It's quite cool. It'd be cool to see someone like Devolver Digital do the same thing. Like, yeah. You know, I like that kind of idea that they've taken their learnings as a publisher and now they're wrapping them all up and applying them as a developer. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, one thing we do know is that game director Chelsea Hash, who previously worked on games like Solar Ash and what remains of Edith Finch, um, is involved in the game. So, again, like if they got the right personnel there. I think it's interesting as well you touch on Daylit because this is more of the Bithel Games argument where, like, you look at the art style in this trailer and, like, no, they're not trying to make something outrageous like yeah. they're making something befitting of i guess where they are as a publisher and now where they are as a developer um and making something different and speaking of something completely different um mess off a name that i i'll be honest i wouldn't have recognized until you reminded me that they were best known for developing nidhogg and nidhogg 2 the side-scrolling fencing games where you get eaten by a giant worm at the end of them <laughs> yeah um they've got a new game coming out called ghost bike um, where it looks like you play as um, uh, some kind of ghost who can ride a, uh, a in the, who in the afterlife can ride a bike between the world of the living and the world of the dead, and uses that to their advantage in some way. Very cool art style, I thought though. Yeah, it looks it looks really cool. And, and this is the sort of thing I think on an indie game showcase, you're just like, yes, like I I don't want the yeah, totally. I don't want boring run of the mill. I want good, like world of the living, world of the dead, bike riding. Let's do this. Like, that sounds yeah. cool. Exactly, and more of that kind of, I don't know, we need to come up with a name for that art style because it's like, it's a little it's a little bit reminiscent of Sable. Um, it's like, some people might call it cel-shaded, but it's not like what cel-shading has traditionally always looked like. It, you know what else it looked like? It looked like that game that I recommended to you in the middle of the week called like first Mars Mars First Front, yeah. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, um, the game that's Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts on Mars. Um, I'm going to have to check. Got to see what you sent me when you sent it to me in the uh, in our WhatsApp. Okay, uh, but that that game had a beautiful Mars start. First Logistics, Mars First Logistics, and Ghost by uh, yeah, whatever that art style is that these games <laughs> seem to be kind of all um, utilizing to some degree. I'm down for it. Um, there was also Jonesy a game that I sometimes I see a trailer for a game and I think Jonesy is either going to think this is the stupidest thing ever and laugh it out of the room, or he's going to be obsessed with it. And uh, never has that also been the case that with Lush Foil Photography Sim, which essentially looks like someone has... I'm not going to speculate that they just used a bunch of, like, a UE5 assets that someone else made, but it looks like they've, like, like they've tried to find a way to make, like, the most lush environments imaginable with absolutely nothing in them and then just pop you in the middle of it with a camera. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Because it's when you can sort of almost feel how a game came into existence... You say, when you think like someone went oh my goodness these assets are so gorgeous you can just I could just walk around and look at them and sense yeah. someone's like that's my game I'm like okay yeah that why not like it let's let's lean into the fact that UE5 has got some crazy assets and a lot of them are free and you, your game could look great and if you like being you could practice photography as long as it gives you enough control on the camera to like learn some stuff then hey this game might be where it's at could well be. I, I I looked at that and was like, Do you know, if that ends up being like a Game Pass game or something, I can see myself having a relaxed. I don't even know Sunday afternoon maybe. What? Oh, 
I'd pick an afternoon of your choice, any day of the week. I can see myself relaxing into that. Um, I'll tell you what's strange about that, though, is it's always, sometimes you have photographer friends who are like, let me show you some of my pictures. And obviously nowadays they're all digital. You're going to get a strange crossover where, Jamie, you're going to come around and be like, let me show you some of my pictures. And I'll be like, oh, where did you go to take these? And you're like, oh, I was I was in my computer. And I'll be like, oh, I mean, you didn't go anywhere to take these. These are digital. And you're like, yeah. I, I, but I think there's something really cool about that. Like, there's a guy that I uh, follow on Twitter who does a lot of, uh, I guess you'd have to call it digital photography now. And sometimes he does it using photo modes in games. And sometimes he yeah. does it just by, I guess, like trying to get like a clean HUD and you know, sort of like framing a camera using the you know, the player's perspective. But I genuinely think there's something to that, especially now where like, if you can compose a good photograph in, in like the photo mode of a game that's running on Unreal, then you could theoretically like frame or block a shot in Unreal. And like, are you then on the road to becoming like a fucking, oh, obviously the games industry is a big and complicated place and you don't get jobs because you upload the things on Twitter, at least not very often. <laughs> but like, those are the beginnings of like a journey into something like like a journey like a role in the cinematics department of some company right like yeah of course no no 100 percent. like I, th I think those skills are this the same skills just because the setup's different doesn't mean you don't have the eye for it yeah, so, yeah absolutely 100 percent. there's no especially because a lot of the times the terminology between like the way we would like you compose a shot using a camera is that like the idea of you know like it like adjusting the f-stop or the aperture or like um uh, to to alter the depth of field, for example, all those same principles are still used in, in the way we kind of the terminology we use um, for say photo modes, which is good. Um, Josie, uh, following on from that, uh, there were a lot of games that we had already seen before that needed uh, release dates, and a lot of them now have them. Um, I will say, uh, stop me if you want to jump in on any of the in any of these. But Cocoon, which is the um, upcoming game from uh, some of the team who worked on Limbo and Inside is coming out on September 29th. Thirsty Suitors, which is that weird kind of like uh, dating RPG thing, uh, is coming out on November 2nd, 2023. Uh, Stray is coming to Xbox consoles pretty soon. Um, Storyteller uh, is also coming to Netflix and is getting new content. And then kind of the thing that was sort of, I don't know, the, the thing that kind of caught my eye the most, maybe apart from Blade Runner and Ghost Bike, um, is the new Keita Takahashi game, To A T which is a, a 3D narrative adventure game where you play as a teen who is apparently just named Teen, who is constantly stuck in a T-pose. Which, again, if that's not a Keita Takahashi game... And we joked about this, didn't we, recently? We joked about a game where you'd start off in a T-pose. What was that? Was that for the DLC for uh, um, Cyberpunk? We said how funny it would be if he starts off in a T-pose. Oh, yeah. We were, and we were joking about how they, if they made a joke about how like you started the Cyberpunk DLC playing as a character who was playing a broken game in VR yeah. and then just when you as a per in real life think oh my god they haven't fixed anything <laughs> V takes the headset off and reveals the, the glory of the revamped Cyberpunk yeah um, no that's, that's that, yeah the, all these games are cool and I'm, I think um, it's like we're saying Annapurna are never uh, they never sort of like shy away from from serving up some of the things that you definitely are interested in and makes you realise how good the uh, indie game scene is I w I'm going to give them a little um uh, telling off for one thing they did which kind of bugged me which was in the um, and, and this got me as well with Devolver they sort of do a little um, uh, sh like a mini trailer at the beginning showing off other games they've done and I sort of jumped in halfway through and thinking it was almost like a teaser for what was to come in the show and there was a shot of um, the, the, the Artful Escape 
And for a split second, yeah. I thought we were going to get to see the Arthur Escape 2. And I was excited for next year more than I would have been from any other game announcement. But I would Yeah. Well, that is one of the interesting things, like going back through Annapurna's publishing history, is there aren't many, if any, direct sequels. There are things that are in the same universe. Like, I know the Unfinished Swan is in the same universe as What Remains of Edith Finch, for example. But, like, going back to the beginning, you know, like, Flower never got a sequel. Gora Goa, uh, Florence wouldn't have made sense. Donut County never got a sequel. Gone Home was pretty interesting. Ashen never got a sequel. Outer Wilds got DLC, um, I guess. Isn't that... Yeah. I think from indies, though, that makes so much more sense because, to my mind... I don't know, it's, it's just how to thing. It is interesting, but you'd have to have such an amazing breakaway hit to get to be like, we need to make a second one. Do you know what but I mean? Like, some of these were big enough hits that, like, don't get me wrong, that game company do not need to make Journey 2. But if they, for whatever reason, got bored enough that they were like, we're making a video game called Journey 2, like, that would be a big deal, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe. I, I kind of feel the pressure to make sequels probably doesn't exist in the same way um, yeah. for a lot of those companies a lot of those people making games and i think if if i and i imagine if you're an indie if you're an indie game dev then you're like i want to make this game and then you finished it and then you probably go i want to make this game whereas i i don't think you probably feel the pressure to go we've got to make the money we've got to churn it we've got to oh my god we've got to make the sequel which i like i quite like i quite like the fact that you get to see yeah a lot more um like variation a lot more stuff tried a lot more you know for sure especially because stuff that they do work with a lot of the same teams like over and over again and those teams always come back with something new which again like lends to your point that there is no pressure to make a sequel they just continue working with creative people whose natural instincts is to move on to something that challenges them in different ways and entertains audiences in different ways um um and i think that's why you know well i think you know the more annapurna publish the less the more likely you are to have games that aren't for you um like when I look at last year for Annapurna, I didn't play a Memoir Blue. I I very much liked the look of Neon White, but I never played it. I liked Stray, um, and then Ho Hokum was a re-release. It's like okay, that's not so bad. Twenty twenty one, like I never played The Last Stop. I thought Twelve Minutes was actually a bit naff in the end. I never played Solar Ash. I thought Maquette was actually more of a miss than a hit. Like, but I'm still glad that all these games exist, which is why I feel like I've got something to say about all of them. You know I mean? I'm, I'm exactly the same. I'm, I love Annapurna, and like I said, I, I put the I love Devolver. I don't I don't play all of their games by any stretch. I maybe play like two or three in a year, um, but that doesn't stop the fact that I'm I'm insanely glad they exist and what I love what they do um, because I because every time they do a showcase, the variation seems to be so high, um, and because they do have it. Like for every for every ten games they have that I'm like not that into, they have a stray, they have an awful escape. Um, you know, they have a bunch of other indie games that you think, damn, they're cool. Like, you know, yeah. wouldn't exist had it not been for uh, um, companies like Annapurna or... Uh, I mean, they, well, I suppose they would exist, but they wouldn't be, like, put together in the same way and made available um, in the same way. We wouldn't hear about it. Sure. Even just looking at some of the stuff they, they didn't talk about, like Open Roads are still in development. That was the... Uh, that's the uh, narrative game that was formerly in development at Fulbright before the head of that company got ousted, but they were the team behind Gone Home and Tacoma. Um, who made who made uh, the road? Uh, what was it? Oh, road? you're thinking of like Road 76. Yes, or something 76. like that. I can't. 
I can't remember because that's something that was like in that ballpark. Road ninety six, road ninety six. Um, because like road ninety six was made by Digix Art, and they self published along with someone called Plugin Digital. Okay, I thought I thought maybe that was Anna Burner or D twelve, but like that was a game that I I really enjoyed. Thought was fantastic, and I just would not exist out there um, if it was like a um, you know a big studio game. Because why would they make a weird, a slightly weird political game with like questionable gameplay? Like it wouldn't. Yeah. Happen, right? Yeah. So, although again, like big talking about big series, another game that wasn't at the showcase but is coming: Silent Hill Townfall, um, a new Silent Hill game being made by No Code. No Code, famous for most famous for a game that both you and I played, Observation. Right, which was fantastic. Um, yeah, love that. And Observation was published by Devolver, so No Code have bounced from from Devolver to Annapurna, um, and are we are working on a massive franchise. So lots to be excited about, I guess, is what we're saying. Um, and it, it's encouraging that there's still so much variety in both the you know the genres and the sizes of the teams and the kind of experiences they're trying to make, um, and especially. You know, the fact that when you talk about Annapurna and Devolver, you also can talk about two publishers that seem to go after different kinds of games. Um, it's funny, it's like, funny. I mean, thinking about sequels of like small games of that, I just suddenly thought of one and I was just like, fuck, I really want a sequel to that. Well, go on. Firewatch. I mean, I want that want more. I don't want to, uh, yeah, exactly. I don't want a sequel because that story's done, but I also want more. Not a sequel. Like, I want. Firewatch, uh, Yellowstone, or something like that, where it's right, exactly, different yeah. characters, different story, different setup, but same feel. Yes, um, and that is one of the saddest stories, maybe, um, of all of this uh, to to end with, because of course <laughs> Firewatch was uh, developed by uh, Campo Santo, uh, who then got um, who announced the next game, which was in the Valley of the Gods. I don't know if you remember that trailer. No. Um, uh, yeah, was, they announced it in. I don't even don't even remember when they announced it, but I think it was. I think it was at the Game Awards one year that they announced it, um, and then they got bought by Valve, and Valve were going to continue to let them make that game and publish it, only for them to get swallowed up by the Valve machine. And they have been since been working on a combination of Half Life, Alex, and Dota Underlords, the team behind Firewatch. Which hey, like I'm not mad that like the creatives at Firewatch or like let's say like the writers at Firewatch helped make Half-Life Alex the game like that it sounded like it was but um it's a bummer that you know a studio with such a unique um such a unique vision and the fact that Ollie Moss who was like I'm not going to say he was the singular person responsible for Firewatch's art style but when you look at a lot of his individual work it's clear that he was one of the the biggest inspirations for what that game looked like the fact that he was also a co-founder of that company and probably would have continued to inform the, the the look and feel of whatever they did next, alongside you know the rest of that crew, a lot of talented guys. Um, it's okay. It's not sad, but at the same time, it is like you're not sad that Alex, uh, Half Life Alex exists, and you know, very cool game. Like, um, yeah, like really fun to play. Pushed the envelope, did a lot, did a lot of stuff. However, with it feels like other people could have worked on Half Life Alex. I I know what you mean. Yes, and it but, seems like those guys could have made some true like very cool memorable games had they not been eaten by the machine yeah especially within a machine like valve where like i know valve's relationships with their writers has fluctuated over the years and people have come and gone and joined and left for various projects and half-life alex was probably caught up in the middle of all of that but when you look at like the history of what valve has been able to produce 
they are not sure on creative and talented writers. And so right. the idea that like the, they that Valve needed the Firewatch team to come in and I don't know, like Valve have a lot of good things going for them already and a lot of reach. A lot of people would drop everything to go and work on a project like Half-Life Alex. You didn't need to buy Campo Santo to get that game over the line, but it was probably just one of those things that was circumstantial and those people were sat a few desks over and didn't have anything to do or were, you know, maybe progress was slowing down or on on um on their next project and who could say? Who could say? Either way, I hope that Campo Santo as an individual entity do return one day, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, hopefully. It could, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. They could come back, totally. Yeah, we're going to come back, Jonesy. Um, probably next week. Um, we uh, we might not actually be live, so if anyone does uh, join in with the, uh, the live viewings of this podcast on Monday evenings, uh, UK time, um, it may not be happening, but even if we do pre-record, we may still put it up as a premiere, so you can get that live experience. You can still sit there, you can still get your popcorn ready, which is we what we know so many of you around the world do. And it also means there will still be a live chat if you want to, um, you know, sit down and join any of the fellow Super Show uh, army. No, the BTS have got that already. <laughs> um, so I was I wanted to do this last time we pre-recorded, and I didn't get a chance to. So this time I might, which is I might watch along as well and and get in the chat like chat with everyone as we there you go doing the uh the, the live premiere i think i might there there's an incentive for everyone if you want to join potentially i should say i don't want to make any promises we can't keep but potentially join mr jones himself in the chat for a live premiere of next week's episode of this podcast then keep an eye on the channel across uh monday whatever you know region you're in easiest way to do that would of course be to subscribe at super show pod is the handle for the youtube channel it's also the handle for the twitter if you want to get in touch on social media and i will once again say a huge thank you to everyone that has gone over to patreon.com forward slash super super show and pledged their support so that we can continue uh doing what we do best which is pretend to know how to talk about video games right jersey <laughs> absolutely uh thank you very much sir you've uh, been an absolute joy to uh, to chat video games with this week as always thank you mate thank you for uh, hosting and doing such a stellar job as always, my pleasure. And uh, and last but not least, thank you for watching and or listening. We hope you had a good time. And we hope to see you again on the next one. Bye. See ya.